first of all, he will around here is treated like a god. I mean, I'll never find out what he could really do. I don't want this to be the high point of his life. I've seen him, the real sad ones. They sit around the rest of their lives talking about the glory days when they were 17 years old. You know, most people would kill to be treated like a god just for a few moments. Welcome to Keeping the Nostalgia Alive, the Indiana Basketball Memory Show. I am your host, Billy Powell. You can go to Keeping the Nostalgia Alive, that's all one word, keepingthenostalgialive.podbean.com, and you can now listen to close to about 190 interviews that we've done. Uh, most of those interviews uh, are uh, uh, attached to the state of Indiana and the great game of basketball. And this show will uh, uh, you'll also enjoy because it is attached to basketball, but we also have music and uh, a lot of other goodies that we're going to chat with. Um, I always do uh, six degrees of separation from the guest that I have on my programs, and it always seems to work out. And I know you guys have always, if you haven't heard of six degrees of separation, Google it or uh, type it in your Yahoo search bar. Uh, but uh, I was born and raised in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. I went to Broderpool High School. And um, from my freshman year through my senior year, we played the Northwest Space Pioneers uh, and, um, uh, in, bas- in the game of basketball. And today with us is Bob Ritter. Uh, he is also a musician. Uh, you can go to bomarandritter.com and check out his music I did last night. Uh, it's very enjoyable. You can also see him on YouTube. Just type in Bomar and Ritter. Uh, in your search bar there on YouTube. Um, so his dad is a Hall of, uh, Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame member, uh, Bill Ritter, uh, and I've had many, many, many uh, interactions with Bill when uh, uh, he was coach and coaching at Northwest. Unfortunately, he has passed away, um, uh, but a, a great guy, and I've had a lot of, ex- a lot of uh, uh, interactions with uh, Northwest basketball. And, of course, I went to Indiana State University. Bob Ritter was on the... Uh, is a sycamore, uh, uh, probably one of the few basketball players uh, at any college that has played college basketball and also went back to their um, college or university and sang the national anthem. So uh, without further ado, uh, uh, Bob Ritter, thank you so much for spending some time with us during these difficult times of the virus. Uh, um, It's amazing how many uh, extra plays I've gotten on my shows because people can't get out and about and do something and they're a little bored and you know, this, if this is the way I got some of my listens, well, just so be it. So uh, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to uh, uh, share nostalgia and, and talk about your life in music and in basketball. Great. Great to be with you, Billy. And, yeah, the, the schedule's kind of wide open these days, so uh, so it's not a not a problem at all. So glad to be with you. Yeah, a lot of people I've interviewed said, you know, this is the best time to get me because I don't have a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> Uh, right, uh, yeah. Bob, tell us a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of gave you a little bit of introduction of you about uh, your family, brothers and sisters, and a, a little bit about uh, where you were born and raised, and uh, what were you first introduced to first, I'm assuming basketball, but uh, also when did you pick up that guitar? Well, uh, born and raised in Indianapolis and lived there until I was about, uh, I guess, 30 I'm going to move to Nashville, Tennessee, but I won't get too far ahead right now. But, yeah, um, my dad, being a basketball coach, it was always kind of there. And then my mom was a musician, a music teacher. And so I was uh, used to, you know, knock around on the piano at home, obviously shooting baskets all the time and following dad over to Northwest and uh, going to the practices and the, and the games from the time I was probably seven years old. And uh, even earlier than that, I'd, I'd 
didn't tag along after when he was at Short Ridge before he even got to Northwest. But um, I started plinking around on the piano when I was seven or eight years old, and I think finally got a, a guitar. Mom got me one for Christmas using those old top value stamps when I was, I don't know, 12, 13. I really remember in, in earnest starting to, to learn to try to play the guitar at 13 and taking a few guitar lessons. So um, uh, that's kind of where it all kind of went together when I, uh, basketball was the, the physical part and then you know, the art part was was music. They always I was always doing that together. Um learning as I, as I as I went you know and, and you just said you just said something that the youngsters who are listening to is kind of blow their mind but there was actually a book and you put stamps into it and there was actually a store you went to and you got to uh, uh, turn those stamps into merchandise right yeah they, there's <laughs> FNH green stamps and the top value stamps and uh, I uh, you know was always interested in, in music and I think mom actually got it from from myself and my sister but I kind of my sister Played played piano more, and then uh, uh, I guess I guess I kind of just took the guitar from her. And uh, yeah, that was I. You know, it was one of those things. I don't know when they stopped doing that, but yeah, that's my first guitar. It's still hanging on the on the wall back in our music room. Um, a little little cheapo guitar, but I I tried to play everything I could until I could get the better guitar when I was you know 13, 14 years old. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Got two sisters and one brother. The uh, older sister Lisa. Um, lives up in Indianapolis as a retired dietitian from the VA and uh, my younger sister Julie my older sister than me and then Julie uh, who also went to Northwest High School is now down in uh, uh, not too far from you there in Katy uh, Texas and and then my brother Bill uh, the last one to come along he's in Indianapolis and uh, quite a bass player he's he's uh, one of the, I think Indianapolis's top bass players and now plays with Duke Tomato up there and uh, uh, so he's he's he, we get him when we can to play along with us, but uh, he's he's a little bit higher up the chain than we are. But so yeah, that's they got the four of us. Was it? Did your dad have any musical talent, or was it just your mom? Well, mom had the had the the raw talent. Dad could sing when mom was a choir director over at uh, St. Michael's there on 30th Street, and then we moved a little further out west towards St. Gabriel's on 34th Street. He was in the choir and he could sing, and he actually uh, liked to write poetry sometimes. And uh, um, but it wasn't a, maybe as much of a natural thing. But he he could sing and carry carry a tune. And uh, but mom had the raw ability; she had more musical ability than I could ever hope to have. Um, but yeah, he he uh, it was interesting because he you know a lot of, he was an athlete his whole life, and but he was a, quite a carpenter and he wrote poetry as well. So kind of one of those renaissance type guys in, in some ways you, you know this is why i do what i do with you know our motto is keeping the nostalgia alive you know just talking mm-hmm. about the green stamps and and also <laughs> just remembering you know uh because i was associated with the basketball program at broderpool for four years in a row and and post mm-hmm. that uh is uh just uh I, I have vivid memories of uh seeing your dad coaching and um that's you know, it's I, I, I like to keep those memories alive by doing what I do. But I just remember right. several times just looking down. You know, most of the time was you know we're going to beat your ass, but uh, <laughs> but to to watch him coach and to watch him do the game and you know it's really interesting. I thought I knew a lot about basketball until I started doing um, uh, what I do and uh, you know to find out uh, uh, your dad's career and and at Purdue and and uh, you know in the uh, armed forces and stuff like that like that. So I. I really enjoy doing what I do, and I, and I appreciate you being able to um, uh, come on the program also. Um, so did you guys have a hoop at your house? 
Yeah, it was uh, when we lived, um, before we moved out to the west side, um, lived there around 39th and Kessler. 38th and Kessler is a big interchange, 39th Street. Um, we were just real close to the Pike District there where we lived, but we had this uh, uh, long driveway, and actually the house when we moved there, um, I was about seven, seven years old, I think, and uh, they had a, a backboard uh, right above the garage. It was actually kind of built in uh, to the house. Uh, it wasn't one that was just a standalone thing. The backboard was kind of up against the house. And it was a longer, narrow driveway. And so, Dad, we got a hoop put up, and I'd spend, you know, cold winter days. And not so much in the summer back then when you are a kid. You know, you didn't play as much in the summer until so you got, you know, maybe toward high school, and then you did it all year long. But I'd be out there and be snowing and rain and raining and about shooting hoops and the interesting thing was i was kind of known as a in high school as a, as a corner shooter playing the forward and that was my corner shot was kind of a signature thing but in that driveway when i was you know really starting to hone my game that corner shot was only about six seven feet away from the hoop you know and so it was interesting how that i was able to to develop that longer corner shot in high school but yeah i spent uh, had you know friends over and just you know wore it out did you, at a young age, uh, did you go to a lot of the uh, the games when your dad was coaching? Did you, um, you know, did you think, you know, eventually I'm going to play for my dad, or, or, or as a kid, were you thinking of other things, or, or what was yeah. your what was your uh, mentality when you would watch your dad coach and go to basketball games? Oh, it was yeah, it was basketball. I remember, I remember, uh, oh, I, he'd bring home old basketballs that were kind of worn out from practice, the old leather balls, and I would. You know, play out in the driveway till the balls are almost like, like felt. Is the regular leather would wear off, and my hands would get so dirty that the creases in my fingers had dirt in them all the time. And I had to get a special brush to to, to get the dirt out of my my fingers. And I'd go to school and had these dirty looking hands, even though they were scrubbed the best I could. But it was always yeah. Um, from the time he, especially since he, when he got the job at Northwest, um, Friday Saturday nights was at the games. Um, during Christmas breaks, I'd, I'd go to all the practices and and uh, try and shoot baskets at one end of the floor when the team was working on uh, when they weren't doing full court stuff. And a couple times I'd miss a shot and it would get out in the court and he'd have to get out in their way and he'd have to kind of get on me a little bit. <laughs> that was yeah, that was pretty much uh, much my life. Uh, and I always that's I always wanted to, to play uh, play for him there at Northwest. And it was interesting. I was talking to another uh, uh, a blogger a few weeks ago about. Uh, life beyond i always i kind of knew i wanted to play college ball and as all kids think about playing professional but i never really thought much about where i wanted to play after high school because that was kind of you know playing at northwest was my uh athletic goal uh, and then after that i didn't really know but yeah it, it, from the time i was probably when you got the job out there it was uh, you know every friday saturday night and uh, sometimes i think Usually, well, we got into junior high. I didn't really have to miss any games because our games were on, on weeknights and things like that because I played at West Lane in 8th uh, and ninth grade and went to Northwest for three years. But uh, I don't think I missed um, missed any games from the time I was probably seven or eight years old unless I was sick or something um, until the time I you know played and, and graduated and then, of course, going to college and couldn't keep up with it as, as much uh, pers- or in person. But yeah, it was. Uh, I felt like I'd, I'd gone to Northwest for, uh, you know, seven or well, eight or ten years. But at the, from the time I actually was introduced to it, to the time I graduated from high school there. So yeah. What was it like 
playing at Northwest and being the the coach's son, is there more? Was there more pressure on you? Did you get uh, uh, a hard time from other players? I mean, I mean, what was it like playing for your dad? It was. I mean, it was everything I I wanted to be. I mean, it was something I had always hoped to be able to do. I and I didn't feel the pressure so much, even though he had to ride me a little harder, um, not to to you know show any any favoritism or anything. But I think I'd I'd come in. I'd had been on some really good teams in, in junior high. There's some guys I ended up playing against that, that, that went on to North Central. We had really good teams there. So I think I fit in, and it wasn't like I didn't have the game to, to match up with the other guys that, that was on the floor uh, with at the time. So I don't think – I mean, there's, I'm sure there's some people that um, probably thought I was just uh, on there because he was my dad. But I think I, I proved that I was I was worthy um, – uh, and we had such a good group of guys, everybody. We respected each other's abilities from the first time we met, the guys like Carl and, and Leon and Keith. And, and so uh, there was never any, any feeling, I don't, I don't think, among the, the team team members. Um, there was, were some times where I felt like I'd, I was, again, Dad had to ride me a little harder, and I'd come home from practices and just felt like, man, what did I do today? But it never left the practice floor. We'd get home and watch games on TV or have dinner, and it wasn't, uh, and it was you know, never anything beyond that where he would, if I didn't have a good practice, we didn't talk about stuff like that or a game, you know, a uh, bad game. Uh, it was just move on to the next things. But um, I don't know. It was, uh, I had to kind of look out for that, but it, it was never that big of an issue, I don't believe. You know, most of the guys that I talked to that uh, played high school basketball in Indiana, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, up until 1997, you know, the the best team in the state won the state championship, and it wasn't, uh, up, you know, divided into classes. And right. I, I always felt that most of the people I talked to, like uh, someone who lived in the Gary area or in the South Bend area, or what I'm leading to with playing in Indianapolis is that you have so much talent and you beat each other up all during the regular season that, you know... <sighs> There, there should be a lot more state champions uh, from the Indianapolis area and those other areas that I mentioned. But when you have to play each other and beat each other up all season, that's just the way it ends up. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, in 75, 76, gosh, there were so many really, really great programs there in the city and the county. Uh, you know, Tech was always, we had some battles with them and Attics and, and Washington and Marshall and schools like Ben Davis and North Central Pike. Um, Gosh, I mean, there there weren't too many slouches. Uh, really, well, I can't say slouches; that's not really fair. But but teams that just weren't quite up to snuff. You had great competition, and and I think uh, there were some times there where I remember talking with Dad and and some of the other players, some of the other coaches. They thought if they took the schools from Indianapolis and and put them out in sectionals out somewhere else out in the state, and they would probably a lot of them in those times. Would, would come back in and probably end up in the state finals because there were so many great teams. And like you said, uh, I think we beat Pike. Uh, or I know we beat Washington and Pike in that Ben Davis sectional that that um, that one year, and, and those teams are all worthy of, of uh, um, getting to the state finals. And it's just like you said, it, we all knocked each other out before we had a, a chance, and that was kind of a, kind of the way that, that worked back then. And I'd still, you know, I, you know, I, I'm kind of disappointed at class basketball, even though I understand what it is. But I would, my thing was, I'd always, I wanted to be the champion instead of a champion 
of, of, of a class. I want to be. I would have rather been the champion of all instead of the best of class. But that's just me. You know, I understand uh, the whole the other side of it too. But uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, a lot of great teams that didn't quite get the chance. We did beat each other out of the, the tournaments. You know, too early. You you won the city championship at Northwest, right? Yeah, I think we were at the finals on my junior year, I believe, and then I know, uh, yeah, we won our senior year, beat, uh, uh, I believe it was beat Broad Ripple for the championship, and that was, you know, with Mike Woodson and those guys, an amazing team. And again, I forgot to mention Broad Ripple last time. <laughs> you know, that was one of the, you know, uh, there's so many of them, I lose, lose track of, of who they are. But yeah, and that was, uh, um, yeah, that was that was just a, just amazing and wonderful because it was just, you know, we were city champs, you know. <laughs> And out of a, uh, the, the talent pool that, that Indy had back then, that was that was quite an accomplishment. So your senior year, your basketball season's over. What starts your journey to where you're going to play more basketball? Well, I'd gotten some offers from. Again, I didn't have any any. Uh, you know, like I, I always was a fan of Purdue. Um, his dad went there, and, and mom went to IU, so I was always partial of those. I guess I always fell on the side of Purdue when they played each other for some reason. Purdue seemed a little more like my type of place, but I just, you know, uh, I guess I didn't have have the game at that point to feel like I could go there. I never got any, any interest from them either. So there's a lot of smaller colleges that uh, seemed interested, and I think after a small and mid-sized school, I remember uh, I think it was Southern Colorado was very interested um, in me, and but after we lost that game in the regional, a lot of the offers, the interest kind of kind of dropped, and I was kind of not really sure what I wanted to do, and, and I had a chance to go to to Hanover College, not too terribly far from where we live right now, and it seemed like an okay thing at the time, but it was, um, I just, it was, there was a little bit of a not sure what I wanted to do. I, I knew I didn't really want to go too far away from home, and that was maybe the, the thing about against the Southern Colorado that probably wasn't as, as uh, uh, didn't make it as attractive to me and so I ended up uh, uh, going to Hanover for a year and that didn't really the academics and the athletics really didn't didn't suit me all that well and so it's again kind of a, another search the following year to go somewhere else and and um, and at that point dad and again we were kind of looking for different places to to go and, and I'm not sure how we ended up um, making a visit over to Albany, Illinois, um, but it was the, the Illinois uh, Junior College system. They had the uh, Albany Central College, and and the, the Junior College system in Illinois was pretty in- interesting, I guess. And I'm, it may still be the way it is now that it was kind of taxpayer funded, that it, and they had one basically located within 45 minutes or 45 miles of every resident. So almost in every small town or within, they had a, a small junior college which was almost like another a high school and so uh, we talked to the coach over there and he he liked the, the style of the indiana basketball players that you know so i ended up uh, he was really interested in me and so i ended up and established a residence over there and you pay a, a registration fee um you know rented an old house and and it wasn't too expensive i don't remember you know folks were paying for stuff back then so uh, i ended up going there and uh after uh had a really good year. The team didn't didn't have a stellar record. I think we won more than we lost, but uh, um, 
but I had a good year individually. And again, though, at the end of that year, I had offers from um, uh, other smaller colleges. And, and, and you know, as I said earlier, you wanted a, a lot of players want to go to the biggest place they can go or get to the biggest uh, competition level, and eventually you have your eyes on playing pro ball. And I still thought in my mind that I could maybe do that because you're, you know, 20, 20 years old and you feel like you're bulletproof and your game, you're on kind of the top of your game and physical self. And, and uh, so I had a chance, uh, my junior college coach at that point, he, he uh, had uh, talked to some other small schools and mentioned those to me. And I thought, you know, it's kind of like going, would be going back to the Hanover size school. And it just didn't seem as attractive to me. And so uh, he ended up uh, going up to talk to Indiana State since it was we're in Alney's, about 30 miles west of Vincennes, so it's not terribly far from Indy and, and wasn't too ter- far from Terre Haute at Indiana State. And also the year I was at Alney was when they had that terrible tragedy down at the University of Evansville when the plane crashed, and um, they were rebuilding their program the following year. And the uh, coach, his name's Frank Law, I think he lives south of Indianapolis now, uh, really believed in me and, and, and put a good sales job about me and uh, to those places and he said the University of Evansville would accept me as a walk-on but Indiana State more so as a walk-on so I think he knew maybe that Bird was, was going to be up there and it would be a good opportunity for me and so I, I went up and uh, visited with Coach King and uh, he said uh, yeah I accept you as a walk-on he didn't promise me anything he said I've got Carl Nix coming back from junior college he's going to be my starting guard and Steve Reed uh from Warsaw is going to be my other guard. I, I think maybe you could be the one to maybe fill in for them, give them a break every now and then, and then then uh, let them get back in. So that that's kind of the short <laughs> story how I ended up <laughs> up at Indiana State. I think I had worked really hard, and, and obviously Coach, um, I, I guess I'd proven myself enough that he he believed in me enough to uh, uh, recommend me highly to ISU, and they they accepted me up there. So. Bob, what was your first interaction? Uh, what was your first interaction or your first thoughts once you see once you saw Larry Bird on a basketball court? Well, it was, you know, I, I went up there in the summer and I, I had known Brad Miley, except uh, back just a little bit. He had played at Speedway for a couple of years, and I'd played with him over there at Meadowood Park in the summer, and uh, then he went to Rushville and. Um, we could have possibly played them in the state tournament that year, which was a game I would have loved to play. We would have matched up really well with him back in 76. Um, but anyway, I knew Brad, and I think I don't know who I got in touch with uh, that summer before I went to ISU to uh, go, because uh, most of the guys are on the team. They had summer jobs there, and every afternoon they'd get in the old arena and, and play. So I got a chance to go over there and, and play, and I didn't know what to expect. All I knew, the main thing that I remember was I actually, for once I was on Larry's, Larry's team in the pickup game usually in practices you know we were going up going up against those guys but um he just it was one of those guys that just made you play better it's one of those intangible things that he I remember one time in particular he had a 15 foot jump shot about the top of the key well right around the, the free throw line but I was under the basket and I was wide open uh for just an easy layup and just in a pickup game would have been easy enough for him to hit that shot but he hit he passed me the ball first time I'd really ever met him he didn't he you know he looked at me as an equal i guess as an equal at that point there's another guy who's got a better shot and he 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 gave me the ball and and it was i just felt like i played better when i was uh on his 
his team in that particular time. And then as you know, the season wore on, just he'd do things like, how in the world did he see that guy behind him? Um, he had that innate sense of, of where everybody was at on the floor at all times. He could so those behind the, the head passes where it didn't look like he was even looking at the guy and just hit him perfectly. You know, I never saw him throw a bad pass. <laughs> if if the bat if the, the pass was good, the player may not have been ready for it. Uh, by paying attention, that's one thing he had to really do when you were playing with him to pay attention to what he was doing with the ball because he wouldn't be looking at you, but he'd get the ball right to you. So yeah, it was just um, still. I mean, and then the whole year, the whole it's like, how in the world? <laughs> how did he do that? You know, how did he see? How did he know? Um, it's something. And somebody asked me what you could learn from a player like Bird, and I, I thought you can't really learn some that that type of stuff. It's just. Uh, he had the natural ability that he just continuously worked on. Um, uh, the thing of, well, I guess what you learned from him was just you work, work hard, and work just just work at it and uh, make the best of what you've got. So you spent the last two years of your eligibility at Indiana State, right? Yes, yes. Um, during that magical run of, uh, of uh, you know, we going up, you know, the finality of going up against Michigan State. What was that season like? What was it, um, how did it compare to high school basketball? Where did you find yourself? What did you find yourself thinking about? What What was that year like? Well, it was, I guess back then it was real easy to live in the moment. You know, nowadays we get out and we've got stuff to look ahead to, schedules to make and all that, and so it's, it's harder to live in the moment. But back then it was, you were just kind of kind of in the moment, um, it, uh, you know, the team I had in high school was was a great team. I mean, we were like a brotherhood, and, and it was similar to that. Uh, we were a little bit older, so, you know, had some more individuality uh, at, at college. But the whole year, everybody, I think we all knew our role. Uh, Coach King had, had told me what, what uh, he, you know, didn't promise anything, but he told me what he thought I could could do. And when he had his heart attack and had to step away from the coaching, then Coach Hodges um took over, and uh, I don't know if he was in, as keen on me as Coach King might have been, but he honored Coach King's commitment to me. And um, But we all, you know, us uh, guys that were more the reserves, we knew what our role was, and that was to make it as tough on the starters and the top seven or eight guys as we could. We call ourselves the average white team because there's that band <laughs> called the average white band back then, but we always wore the white uh, jerseys, and the starters wore the blue and so we call ourselves the average average white team, and that was kind of our little uh, just you know, our, our our team uh, <laughs> the sub team that we you know our little pride thing. And uh, um, but you know as the year wore on, uh, you know we just worked hard. I mean it's like boot camp. I've never been through harder practices in my life. The first uh, three or four weeks, um, you know, like four hour practices and drills and wearing out shoes you know i'd wear wear out maybe a couple pairs of shoes during the high school season and even up through junior college and i was blowing through shoes every you know and and not you know playing as much as the starters but you know every three weeks to a month have to get a new pair of shoes because they either just the bottom would rip on them or i'd tear out the side of them or something so very intense and uh but as we got on through the season i think everybody just took things one game at a time we worked hard as, as the reserves, trying to make it tough on the starters. And the thing was, um, Coach King, I mean Coach Hodges, and his staff were really uh, the scouts would go out and check the other teams we were playing, and they they really had it down on 
we knew, you know, what the other team was going to do, their offensive schemes, and they would assign me or uh, Rod McNally from Speedway was the other walk-on. We were kind of the guards, which is a little transition for me. I always played forward up to that point, and then playing guard was a, a bit of a change. That they said, now you're going to be so and so. He likes to dribble to the left and turn back and do different things, and each each uh, reserve had their assignment so the start so the uh, starters could know what the opposition was going to do and, and they had us so well prepared uh, really all year um, so we took our role seriously as kind of the uh, uh, well practice squad I suppose you want to call it that um, so the starters would know uh, as close as they could I mean you know if we were as good as the guys that are on their team we might be playing on another team but you know have them so well prepared for what to expect in the games um, but again, just went along and, and we started winning games. And I don't think any of us really felt the pressure when we're five and zero, seven and eight, ten and twelve and zero, and starting getting a little bit of a national attention through the rate, the uh, the rankings. I think being a small mid major at that point, um, and the media and the, the you know there wasn't the, the cable TV and and all that, so uh, we were still kind of obscure. And I know at one point though we had in one of the polls, I'm not sure what our record was at that point, um, they had put us at number one, and it was uh, Monday afternoon practice, and Coach Hodges came in and said, well, how's it feel to be number one, guys? And everybody kind of thought, well, yeah, that's cool, but, you know, we got got practice, so let's just get on with it. And we didn't let it really, uh, uh, it didn't, I don't remember it affecting anybody as far as, oh, man, we're 16-0, we got to, you know, pressure's on now. Just Everybody took it one game at a time. And the fans were great, you know. They, after uh, you know, big win, they meet us back at the arena or uh, sometimes at the airport, and uh, so that was that was really cool. But again, it was just uh, kind of a one game at a time, and I never really felt even all the way up to the the, the tournament. Um, it was just a real exciting time, and we just all took it in stride. I think pretty well. What was that tournament run like, and was there any point before you guys started the tournament run did you think, you know what, we could win this whole thing? Yeah, there was one time, I I don't know, I, there may have been conversations about it between the guys, but I remember just one time being in, my, in the dorm room, and uh, part of the weird thing about that season, uh, like I mentioned, Rod McNally from Speedway, he was the other walk-on, and at that, that year they uh, um, had – they could only take 12 players on the road during the conference season. We had 13. So Rod and I had to flip a coin, and we'd, we'd alternate road trips, um, which is kind of kind of hard because, you know, he'd, he'd go on one. You know, he'd be the two-game usually a Thursday and a Saturday, and then the next road trip I'd get to go. But uh, at, then the NCAA tournament, that was uh, no worries with that. But at, at, uh, at one point um, – it was getting toward the end of the season, and maybe, I don't know if it was after we'd won the conference championship uh, or not, but I was just sitting in my dorm room and thinking, man, you know, we could we could do this. We could get, because at that time, the tournament wasn't as big. I don't, I think there was only, uh, I'm not sure how many teams there were. Uh, we had, because what we had to do, we played a sub-regional, had it, they called it a sub-regional out at uh, Lawrence, Kansas, which was really cool, because we got to play out at Allen Fieldhouse there. It's a classic Barn, as I call it, like Hinkle Fieldhouse in right. Indy, those are, those are the best uh, arenas. They they echo and they boom. And they're not like a theater like some of these places are now. Um, and then when we won that game, played Virginia Tech. Um, then we were in in the Sweet 16, uh, and then play, went to Cincinnati. But um, 
yeah, it was, uh, uh, yeah, there, there's that certain point that I remember it was real specifically in my dorm thinking, man, we could, we could do this, you know? And, um, so yeah, there was a certain point, but, but up to, I guess, you know, uh, it, it was probably during the conference tourney or maybe right after we, we won that. We just still took everything one game at a time. What was the disappointment level with, um, uh, losing the championship game? Was it, was it more of we had a great season, or was it more of uh, you know uh, you, you didn't win the national title? Oh, we were we were crushed. I mean, I spoke to myself. I felt like uh, I, I cried on like cried on the bench like I'd played the whole game. You know, it was just such a because we felt um, we just I think at that certain point we had the momentum again. The pressure wasn't there really, but we felt like we can do this. You know, we had, we had uh, uh, kind of turned back a lot of the naysayers and. Um, Larry was usually able to, if he wasn't having a good game, somebody else could could light it up. And you know, the the game that uh, Bob Heaton hit that long shot out in New Mexico State to um, put the game into overtime and end up winning to to preserve the uh, the winning streak. Larry had fouled out, and so he didn't even play in that overtime period. And we knew that we could do well if he wasn't in the game, or even if he was having a a bad game. I think in another game, I think one that I didn't get to go to on a road trip, they had, out of Bradley maybe, they had bottled him up and he only had four points. But uh, I think Carl, had, you know, he, he Carl next took up the slack that game. So there was times when, when Larry wasn't on top of his game that we still had found a way to win. And, and so we knew that if they had bottled Larry up, we figured we could still do well. But, yeah, you know, I just felt like it, it was kind of a throwback to the disappointment after we'd lost in the regional there in Indianapolis in high school. Um, just, just crushed, you know. Just, you know, it just uh, we thought we could do it. You know, with your, uh, with, what, did your dad follow you guys, and uh, was was he excited about your guys' progress and what you did that 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 year? Yeah, that was a cool thing because I mean, as, as a father, I'm sure he, you know, he was and told me he was very proud of what I'd been able to do. But then, as a, as a coach and former player, from that standpoint, it was a great source of pride for him too. That, and he always took pride in, in no matter what the, his former players did that went on different schools and had had their levels of success. He just enjoyed that so much, and this was a an extra special thing to be able to. Uh, they he was able to come. I think he well his. His brother lived in Kansas City, so they went out and visited them. Then came on out to Lawrence to see the uh, um, the, the sub-regional game there. And then, of course, Cincinnati for the, the uh, Sweet 16 was just down the road from Indianapolis, so uh, I was able to get them tickets for that. And then they came out to Salt Lake City as well. So um, I know he was he was disappointed as well, but I think it was a, a great source of pride. And I was I was glad that he was able to be he and Mom were able to be a part of that. Um, in, in spite of the the loss, was there is there any Coach Hodges stories or any Larry Bird stories that we haven't read in any books? Well, I didn't get to know Hodges all that that well, other than that I like I said earlier, he was I thought he was a brilliant tactician. Um, he had us so well prepared, and and with his uh, assistant coaches that scouted, and I think uh, that was a lot of the. Uh, of course, Bird kind of made everybody play better, and, and with his his being the cog of the wheel. Um, but I don't really have any any really crazy stories about him. I know Larry um, was kind of a private person. He was, you know, uh, the old the Hick, the self-proclaimed actually Hick from French, Hick, <laughs> <laughs> the, 
sometimes he called himself the prick from French Lick, but that was, <laughs> he, he, uh, that was all self-proclaimed as, as well. Um, he was always uh, a, a fierce competitor. He always, if there was any kind of jokes going around or something, he would always get the last word. Um, uh, I do remember, though, in one game, I didn't, again, didn't get into the games much to play along with him. I was usually, and I always joke about my claim to fame, was <laughs> Uh, standing ovation every game I came in, but I was usually coming in for him. He would be the last one <laughs> off of the from the starters, and I'd be the either the next to the last or the last one off the bench. And so I'd, there'd be a standing ovation. I'd say, "Hey, I'm getting a standing ovation for but it was really for him." Um, but there's a t- time where uh, uh, we were, I, you know, maybe for a couple minutes, he I wasn't didn't come in for him, and he was we were on the court together, and the game was way out of hand. You know, we were ahead by thirty or something like that, but. You know, one of us threw a bad pass, and he'd get on you. Come on, man! You know, <laughs> he didn't care if the game was up. We were up by forty. He wanted, he wanted you to play your best. And and uh, you know, there's a couple times where uh, there's one story that that uh, I, I meant to tell when we we had our 40th anniversary thing a year ago, and they had interviewed several of us. And um, over one of the uh, over the Christmas break. That year, we'd stay in town at the, the hotel. They, they closed the dorms, and so they'd put us up in the, the Sheridan. And we'd have a roommate. I think I might have roomed with Tommy Crowder and, and then Bob Heaton. Um, I'm not sure whether he stayed there. His folks just lived down south of Terre Haute, and, and then uh, Larry would stay there. Well, well, Tommy Crowder was a gun enthusiast, and so he'd, we'd go out with his and go out in the country near Bob Heaton's uh, folks. Uh, and just just shoot guns, target shoot, and Tommy had the big, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Dirty Harry, uh, 44 Magnum, you know, the big long barrel, the gun. It's just, um, you know, and so we just do that kind of stuff. Well, one time uh, we were out with I mean, just with shotguns, and and uh, Larry or uh, Tommy and, and Bobby were in. Uh, a, a, there's two uh, a farmers friend a friend of Bob's that lived near him and the both brothers and they had tractors and we were riding around and these these small tractors had these small cabs in them and so the driver was driving and, and bob and tommy were in one tractor kind of squeezed into the cab and then me and larry were in the other tractor and just kind of going on to different places out toward the woods to, to target shoot and at this one point me and larry were in this tractor and we tried to go up this little the guy was trying to go up this little bit of a rise and it was kind of icy and the tractor started to slip. The wheel started to slip a little bit, and he let he started to let the tractor roll back down a little bit. Well, then he, he I guess he put the clutch back in, caught the back wheels, and the front end of that tractor kind of reared up, and like it was almost going to roll over backwards with us. And it, the front end kind of lifted up, and then I think he released the clutch, and it kind of just uh, laid back over to the right, and then we just kind of rolled slowly back down. This it wasn't very big rise. But it was like, holy crap! <laughs> we could have rolled that thing over. And of course, we joked about the headline being, you know, uh, all-American Larry Bird and the unknown player uh, injured in a farm accident. But you know, I've thought about that, and it's like, you know, if, if something would have really happened on that that day, that could have changed the course of college basketball history. <laughs> and uh, that was one story that not too many people know about because it was uh, we were just out killing time. I think we had practice later that afternoon, and. And that tractor, uh, you know, that that front end bucked up enough to make your really your heart jump up into your your chest or jump out of your chest. And uh, we kind of laughed about it later, but that could have been, who knows? Thankfully, we don't. 
But uh, yeah, Larry, I know, he just he was still kind of a private person. In fact, it was until years later I w- I'd get a chance to go see him play in the pros. And one time, uh, somebody noticed me up there. At the, the Pacers were playing Boston, and I had gotten tickets to the game and kind of went down toward where the players went in. And somebody recognized me and got you know said, let me come down to the locker room. Of course, the Pacers had beat Boston. Larry just didn't take very well the defeat, so he wasn't very talkative after that. But as the years have gone by, and he's he's um, uh, you know especially after the uh, uh, well, he had the. Um, the thing I noticed the most where he really kind of loosened up, I felt like I was more of a friend than just a former teammate, um, where we had, uh, uh, they had dedicated that statue to him over at Holman Center. I don't know if you ever had a chance to check that out. It's quite an impressive uh, structure that, that they have, they've built, and they had a big day around him. And he would came back for that. He, a lot of times he wouldn't come back for the reunions because he thought all the t- attention, and rightly so, all the attention would have gone to him, and he wanted the teammates the rest of the team to not just be shadowed by him. But, I mean, we would have been okay with it, you know, because he, he deserved the attention that he got. But he was – and sometimes he couldn't come because he was still playing. But we have different reunions. But they had – back in 2000 – I think late 2013, they had the um, statue dedication there outside the Holman Center. And, and at a private dinner a little later on, there wasn't a whole lot of us there. And um, right before I left, I just said it was an honor to be able to – play with you on the team. I said, I'm not sure how much I had to do with anything. I worked real hard in practice. He goes, man, you had a lot to do with the success of that team, so don't even think about that. And so nice. I, I, that really made me feel good because you never know as a, as a reserve we tried to do the best we could, but he was obviously the big cog in that. But if him, he wouldn't, and he wouldn't say something like that just to be saying it either. You know, he was, uh, he'd say what he meant, and so I, that meant a lot. Uh, so, you know, uh, the uh, NCAA tournament is over. I'm assuming at this point in time, Maybe you have decided that you're you're not going to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> what is your mindset? What was your major? What did you want to do? What uh, uh, were you? You know, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, after that, well, of course, after our big year, I had one more year there at ISU, and that that year was kind of an up and down year. Um, and so after after school, I always, you know, again was always, uh, I guess, I was a, a closet guitar player musician i think i don't up to that point i'd only played in front of people maybe one time when i was over here at hanover played a james taylor song at a, at a dorm party and i was just uh, generally pretty shy and it's kind of odd that people know that i get out and play music now they said he was always so shy how did you get him in front of people uh to do stuff like that but i uh i always wanted to uh to play music and there's something when you when you've been given that gift, you can't not do it, no matter what it does, and no matter how scary it is. <laughs> but I uh, left uh, uh, ISU and, and was a little bit short of a degree, just because I transferred from Alney or from uh, Hanover to Alney and then to ISU. But I still was thinking the traditional route of trying to get some sort of college degree. So I think I laid out a semester uh, in the, the fall of 1980, and then enrolled at IUPUI in Indianapolis and. Um, was studying computer technology because back then, 1980, that was still kind of a thing of the future. And I was thinking, well, this, you know, this might be a thing to to get into. To who knows where it would go. And so I was doing that, but at the same time, following this this uh, love of music and and really knowing that if I couldn't play pro basketball, but music was something I really wanted to do. I just didn't know where I wanted to go with it because I was a big fan of 
guys like Bob Seger and some of the more rock type artists and uh, but I didn't really have the, that kind of a voice and so I just was kind of noodling around and, and um, going to school and playing in a, a, a band of a guy that I took guitar lessons from when I was 13 um, he was not that much older than me at the time but uh, he was out playing and we'd play you know, weddings and festivals and stuff like that so I kind of got my feet wet as far as getting out to do more live performing and um I met a guy at, at uh, IUPUI in some of that computer curriculum. He was a musician, and, and we had similar backgrounds and, and interests, you know, the Neil Young, Dan Fogelberg, and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and we got together and started, started playing some tunes, and, and then we uh, um, uh, ended up getting a, a gig at the old McShane's Lounge in Indianapolis. A friend actually owned it at the time, so that's how we got in there. And, and you know, we played, like, for six hours, and... There's no guarantee. I don't think they paid us anything. We would split like 50 bucks in tips over those six hours. And there's one night was way even less than that when we played. But that's where I just was trying to find a way into uh, finding my musical uh, direction. And, and I just I love so many types of music, but I, I needed to find something that that really suited uh, my voice. And and the, I was. Had, Growing up, listening to a lot of John Denver and Kenny Loggins, so it's more of the acoustic-based artists. But then I also liked some of the rock artists and uh, you know, like the Jimi Hendrix types, which I couldn't you know, begin to play like him. So I just you know, was kind of riding along and, and started uh, playing some acoustic stuff with this, uh, this this friend of mine, Bill Rumley, out of Indianapolis. And uh, um, I was studying computer technology and I was kind of in over my head in that and I remembered the very last final exam that I took I was just struggling and um, I just said and I basically turned in that last final blank it was some one of these real, real heavy duty uh, uh, was operating systems classes where it's just the really gut levels of the computer the, the basic uh, computer operation and I, I was just like what is this stuff I'm so far so far over my head in this and so I, I said a little prayer. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do here? You know, I've been trying to figure this out and trying to play music on the side. And, and the very next, and so I turned that final in, and I, I uh, thought, I'm, I'm done with, with school. I've got to figure out something. And the next day, uh, a good friend of mine from uh, Indiana State that actually roomed with him one summer there, a guy named Bill Edwards, uh, he called and said there's some couple friends of, of his that I had met before that are musicians that wanted to get together with me to maybe play some music. And I thought, I think that's my answer, <laughs> and so I, I got in this this trio, and we did some. Uh, they were into the Dan Fogelberg, and, and again Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, which is a, still the stuff that's the, the the bulk of the influence of the music we play today. And so we, I started playing with those those uh, two, and and uh, started figuring out that at a certain point I, I uh, uh, wanted to take this as far as I could go. It's kind of like the same thing with the basketball route. I wanted to, you know. Pro basketball turned out to not be, but I, I didn't have to look back. I kind of knew what my ability was, and I was able to not feel like I had, uh, you know, left any stones unturned in that that realm. So I again started looking to, you know, writing my own songs, and, and uh, again through this Bill Edwards' help, uh, started to look at maybe trying to move to Nashville and meet some people down there. So um, it was the course of over after I left school. It was probably in. 80, 83, 84, somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly. The years all kind of run together, but started writing tunes and then just just uh, kind of let the Lord lead me where He wanted me to go. And 
ended up moving down to Nashville in 1988. Um, I had met through Edwards. Uh, he had gone down there on, on business and met this guy who was really a great guitar player and then turned out to be a really good Christian guy who um, Bill, or this guy named Dave Salyer ended up getting a gig with the Barber Mandrell. Um, he said, yeah, you, want, you guys want to move down or if Bob wants to move down here, I'll help him meet people and and uh, uh, anything I can do to help him, I will. So that I thought, well, I know one person in Nashville, so I'm I'm ready to to make the change and 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 go. And so uh, that's how I ended up kind of going down to Nashville back in 1988, I guess it was. I worked. At, I had the job. I am not just I wasn't just playing music enough to make make enough money. I was I've got a job at Indian University Hospital as a pharmacy technician. That's how I was surviving uh, back then too. And on the three days days I had off, I'd be doing something with music or uh, trying to get gigs on the weekends. And so, yeah, I I, I kind of left out that regular work thing, so I've kind of forgotten. Because <laughs> 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 you got to have, have the real job for a while. And uh, then when I moved to Nashville, I got a job at, at a hospital down there, so I didn't have to do the traditional musician job of waiting tables and flipping burgers. I would have been terrible at that. Um, and I I appreciate the work those kind of uh, that kind of work because that's that's tough. Um, dealing with public and waiting tables, but you've got something you love to do, and you find a way to to make it happen. And so I was working at the hos- at a hospital down there in Nashville as a pharmacy tech, um, doing that kind of work to pay the bills. And so, how does Bomar and Ritter come into your life? Well, we uh, I was down, moved there in March of '88, and and um, just kind of got my feet on the ground and talked to some people and they said just kind of give yourself a month or so just to kind of figure out where you're at in town where things are at so i went out and started playing writers nights you just go sign up and you get to play two or three songs of your own everybody plays their own material down there for the most part i mean if you get a gig at a restaurant or something you can mix in covers but when you play the writers nights you just play your own own songs which was which was pretty cool it, it was kind of a inspirational to you know get yourself writing and you hear other other songwriters and some that are have been there for a while and you hear how they do it and it's like man you know I, I, it either inspires you or it intimidates you or a little bit of both and uh so i start doing that and just kind of knocking around through the summer of 88 again this is dave salyer would hang out with him quite a bit and uh we'd go play basketball and and uh, of course he, he and his wife are big boston celtics fans so i had some you know they were interested in larry bird backstories and stuff but um uh, as I started, uh, oh, just for about a year, hung out with him a bit, and when he had the time, he was pretty busy touring. But um, just knocking around, playing riders' nights, working during the day, and and you know, uh, running, staying in shape, and so my life was it seemed pretty simple then. Go to work, work, you know, run in the afternoon, go play riders' night, and and get back to Indianapolis when I could, and and um, and then it was about uh, I think it was in in uh, May, early May of 1989. There'd been a guy that I'd kind of met at one of the writers' nights, and we were hanging out quite a bit. And I'd back him up on his songs. He'd, he'd back me up on mine. And and at one point, he had met this uh, woman at his church, and he he told me about her. He said, "I think you ought to meet this this woman. She's really neat." He wasn't trying to fix me up or anything, but just he thought she was a really neat person. And so at one point uh, in early May of '89, oh, he he had uh, bought a house, and his roommate had had moved out, so he didn't have a whole lot of furniture and just had a, had a decent job at Arthur Anderson uh, down there. Um, but he said, I'm, you know, come over tonight, we'll just play some tunes. And 
I guess uh, he had invited Mary to come over, and when she got there, uh, he said, I hope you don't mind, I've invited this other friend of mine. And so as songwriters do down there, you just get together and play songs. And and, uh, and so uh, I had been trying to, to ask somebody out for a while, and at that point I was, which it wasn't working out, and so I thought, you know, I'm just going to concentrate on my music this summer and not really kind of tired of trying to date anybody right now. <laughs> and so when I walked in, and Mary, Mary had, had just broken up with somebody, and, and she uh, was... Some, from what she says, maybe she had bumped her head or something. She, said, you know, she was really impressed with with me that that day, and I was, I thought she was really attractive. But at the, at the same point, I was like, yeah, I'm just not quite ready to start at, and trying to ask anybody out yet. So that's when we met, and so we kind of ran into each other a couple other times at writers' nights, and and kind of got to be friends. And then this friend Steve, uh, he had uh, booked. Uh, the Bluebird Cafe is kind of the songwriter's capital of of Nashville, and probably, in some some people might say, songwriter's capital of the country. It's a little tiny room there in Nashville where the best of the best play. And if you get get a chance to get a showcase there, you've done pretty well. And so he had landed a showcase there, and he wanted us to back him up. And so we spent the better part of one, this particular week in probably in June, I think, of '89. And working on tunes, and going out to the parks, and having cookouts, and, and then just playing the tunes and working on his showcase songs. You get to do three songs in this little showcase, so it's a, you know, it's not that it's a, it's a big deal, but it's just three tunes. We were working on that, and we got to know each other a little better then. And um, and I was getting more interested, and she was already interested, and so we started uh, dating after she had gone uh, gone home to Virginia. She's from outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And she had gone home for a week or so, and we uh, talked on the phone a few times and realized we really kind of missed each other and got started dating shortly after that and realized that, uh, you know, we didn't take too long to realize we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. And, and so we started, uh, I think, the first gig we played together, this other guy that we knew had needed a fill-in for a gig at this hotel, and so we started playing music together then. And, and our harmonies blended real well. It wasn't too hard to... To work out the tunes. We had similar influences again with the uh, singer-songwriter era of the 70s with the, the Joni Mitchell was Mary's big influence. And, and then Dan Fogelberg was once I finally, you know, stepping back a little bit, uh, finally really got into Dan Fogelberg. I found my musical direction, his, his voice and the style of songs was really, uh, it was like a laser beam almost, like that's the music, <laughs> kind of music I want to do. So we started playing together then and, and then uh, we met uh, again. It was like early May of '89. Got married the end of April in 1990, and so been playing music together in one form or fashion ever since. then. we put out a recording in the our first recording together in like late, early '93, and which still sells pretty well. We don't have any more CDs of that left. We need to get some more made. And uh, but at the, back at that time, uh, the internet was kind of in its infancy and uh, we knew some other players had played these places out in uh, oh we'd, we'd booked some gigs around nashville but we also tried to get out and play some places in north carolina and out of missouri some little coffee houses we'd heard about and um, realized that how quickly you can lose money when nobody knows who you are when you book yourself at these places and uh, so anyway we we uh, did you know for a couple three years after that first recording we we 
really tried to get out and promote it, get people to get interested in us and manager as far as managers and things like that. But you know, there's so many. I mean, everybody in Nashville is, is is amazing. You know, you may not like the type of music they're playing, but they're really good at it. Um, and so it's really hard to get get any kind of traction. I think we were kind of on the edge of maybe getting some interest at times, but it's it was kind of hard. So we at a certain point we just kind of uh, uh, laid back on. From our music and uh, still working regular jobs, but traveling when we could, and um, I can go on and, and you know tell get the whole evolution if you want me to <laughs> where we're at up to this point. Um, Please. Uh, okay. Uh, well, at, at that point when we kind of got to a point it's like we don't know where quite to go with this, we had plenty of other songs to do another recording, but back then it was a little more expensive to, to record. Now you can do some stuff pretty inexpensively uh, in home studios and get some really good recordings. Um, but we were just like, we didn't know really where to go with it, so we kind of backed away from uh, performing like we were. And in the meantime, we had both been working with the Country Music Foundation Words and Music program where they had a songwriting curriculum that was they would uh, send out to schools that were interested in the kind of central Tennessee northern alabama region um and and it's like usually they would go from third grade on up through high school uh had a woman that coordinated that and they would have the kids end up writing uh trying to write song lyrics and the songwriters they we would volunteer to work in that program what they would do um say there was an elementary school that the fifth grade class they had these song lyrics they would contact one of us or both of us um, to work with the school, they would send us the lyrics a week ahead of time. The school is going to come into town and do a tour of the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum, take, I think, a, maybe just a tour of Nashville. But as part of that tour, they had a small theater in, in the old Country Music Hall of Fame. They've got a huge, great, big one downtown now. But um, we would, they'd send us the song lyrics, maybe 50 to 60 sets of lyrics, and um, we were to put music to as many of those lyrics as we could. And we didn't have a lot of time in a week to, uh, and they didn't want you to edit too much. So you had to go through the lyrics, and at that point you could say, "Wow, this one, yeah, this is good." And they're just, they're either not a writer or they're not a writer yet, and we didn't have time to edit um, things like that. So we would maybe get, if we did one in a session individually, we might get six or seven songs done. If we did it together, we might uh, get up to ten, maybe eleven songs, and they would bring the kids, the classes, into this little theater in the Hall of Fame Museum, and we would talk about what we did with the song and play the song for them. And it was a, uh, the kids would be, you know, we'd say, oh, now, where's Mary Smith? And everybody would look over and laugh and cheer and clap, and they'd, well, here's what you, we did your song. It was a great lyric, and we'd put, and they were always amazed at having hearing their lyric. But the music, the, the, sad, the bad thing was, though, there, we might have gotten 60 or 70 sets of lyrics and, you know, maybe 10 or 12 or less got picked to to uh, be uh, turned into a song and it's a great lesson in the music business i mean there's so many great writers and very few of them get published and even fewer of them get recorded and very even fewer of them get radio play and then you know the very few get to be a hit song but we uh, started to take that idea to um mary's old elementary school up in 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 virginia where the whole class would get to write one or two songs and we would go up and work uh, well, even before we got into what turned into our program called Lyrics Alive, uh, we would still set the music uh, to lyrics, the lyrics they'd sent to us, set music to that and come back and up there to Virginia and play a concert for the kids. The, 
kids didn't really get as involved with the, the writing process other than what they had done in the classroom. Well, eventually, one special needs school up there, um, the kids who had had uh, kind of the OCD and uh, just issues not that were like, like violent issues or drug issues, but kids who just couldn't quite fit in the regular schools, they wanted us to come in and write with the kids. They wanted us to come in for more than in one day so what it ended up we would go in and they would have their song ideas and we would edit and work write the songs with them right there at this at this school and in this one case which which made us realize how much bigger the whole thing was than we were this young boy had written a lyric about his sister who had died in a farm accident down in texas they had this huge ranch you know you use helicopters to fly from one end to the other it was that big and his little sister it had been about six years prior to when we would, had worked with him back in the mid-'90s. Um, she had fallen off the back of a truck. They were riding in the back of a pickup truck, and they hit a bump, and it threw her out. And he ran to her, and she basically died in his arms. And he felt like he should have been able to save her. And so he wrote this lyric about how life is, is precious, and um, Mary put some amazing music to that, and we played it for him and then played it for the school that day. And it... You know, the whole place was in tears, and, and we realized later on that this kid had, you know, we didn't realize all this other stuff about how he thought he should have saved her and all that, but it helped open up uh, another avenue of his therapy to realize uh, the physics teacher you know, said it was physically impossible the way the momentum and all that stuff is with physics to have caught her and, and saved her, and, and it helped him. Uh, with the other therapy he'd gotten, this one last little thing, it helped him move past that that tragedy. And we thought, holy cow, we never thought about anything like this. We were just thinking this was a, a you know the fun and challenge of, of putting words together, and making songs and things. And so we started to uh, uh, try and expand that out. And it took quite a while to, uh, and we get, finally gave it our own name, the, the called Lyrics Alive. The country music thing was called Words and Music. And they wanted, uh, the people that ran that wanted songwriters to maybe take it on their own and, and maybe go out and try and make some money with it, but just to expand the, the idea of songwriting and creativity to kids. So um, this is all while we were still living in, in Nashville in the uh, mid to late 90s. And as the time was wearing on, I really wanted to move back up to Indiana. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in, in Tennessee. And Mary didn't really care as long as we lived someplace out in the country, which is what I always wanted as well. So um, we were had you know weren't playing as much of our own music like we are now, but we were working um, to build this uh, lyrics alive program, getting into schools. And then and the guy that Mary went to church with was a uh, an executive at a business down there in, in Nashville, and he thought we ought to turn it into a nonprofit and uh, you know get grant money and and help us to be able to make a living at it, but offer the program to schools at a lower cost and everything. So. Um, you know, a lot of it was involved in that. We finally were able to turn that into a nonprofit, but um, we moved back up this way uh, from Nashville in, in uh, June of 2002, and um, continued to expand the program. I still actually went down to, to work in Nashville every other week. I was on an every other week schedule at the hospital there, so it was kind of crazy uh, being home and then going for about 18 months. I'd go down there and stay with friends and and work and trying to get this uh, lyrics live program off the ground. And eventually, we were able. To, I was able to jump out of the hospital in early 2004 and go full time with our Lyrics Alive program. And we still weren't doing as much of our own music like we are now. Um, and so, uh, 
Oh, at some point in Scottsburg, which is the county seat here in Scott County, uh, uh, they opened a coffee house, and they were having music there. And it was, again, like play for tips kind of a thing. And we went ahead and got booked there, and we realized how much we missed playing the music we had been playing and some of our original stuff. So as it, it evolved, we started booking ourselves during the summertime to play in some coffee houses, and mainly for tips because nobody knew who we were, and we couldn't command uh, you know, uh, a lot of money or any money at that point. <laughs> but we were still working with the Lyrics Live program, and it was going quite well up through... Uh, 2008, uh, we had up to, I think, 15 programs in the school year, and it was a four-day program. We'd go in the, uh, the first day, first two days, edit either song lyrics they had written, the schools had written ahead of time, usually fourth or fifth graders, or we'd just write, uh, if they didn't have time, we'd just start from scratch in the classroom, and uh, we'd set music to those lyrics, and then on the third day, we would come back into the classroom, teach the kids the songs, on the fourth day, do a live concert. Uh, and record it and try and make CDs available. So there's a lot of work involved, creative work in that. So doing 13 to 15 programs in a school year was was really a full load because um, you couldn't do – we'd do three weeks in a row on uh, a certain point, and it would just – we would be so tapped <laughs> at the end of that third week because there's a lot of – again, a lot of work involved. And so we did that a lot up uh, – well, really just up till uh, last year when – after 2008 when the economy kind of – Kind of crashed out, and the the funding, uh, as far as the nonprofit, started to dry up. Uh, schools were shifting their focus on on their funding to other things, and so um, and the kids kind of changed too. They weren't quite as uh, I don't know. They were they're having more trouble focusing, and and so it was things weren't quite as enjoyable as they were. So they just kind of uh, wrote it, have written it out to the end, uh, and we really stopped doing that now. If a school wants to do it, we've we've uh, uh, shuttered the nonprofit. We're not doing that anymore, but we can still do it if a school wanted to do it. And in the meantime, we've been ramping up our own playing for the last 10 years or so and uh, getting up to the point now where we play lots of wineries. Uh, our music's a good match for wineries. We're not uh, kind of a laid-back vibe in general, uh, depending, but we do some blues and some more uh, folk rock type stuff. Uh, and um, uh, but you know, wineries, restaurants, and any place that will really have us, and probably averaging in the summertime, we're we're averaging at the rate of probably 120 dates a year. We don't play that many because during the winter, traditionally we weren't weren't doing programs because we weren't doing gigs because we were doing school programs, and there are less gigs available in the winter because a lot of the wineries only do music in the summer, and so there's more musicians and less gigs in the winter, so they're a little harder to come by. So uh, that's kind of where we've ended up at, at this point, um, but that's that's kind of the full-time thing. I still, when I left the hospital there in Nashville in 2004, they asked me if I wanted to stay on as what they call PRN, as needed help, and I thought, yeah, I guess so. I don't think I'll ever need to do it, but thankfully, uh, I've still got that status, so when I have an opening in our schedule, I'll go down there for two or three days and work a little bit. It's a little bit of a safety net for us to bring in some money if, if we're not quite as busy or during the off season, you know, uh, usually November through, uh, you know, March or April. Um, of course, now everything's shut down. They don't need me down there. And I, the nice thing about it, though, is I can tell them the days I'm available and they say, come on down. So it's not like you have to be here on these dates. You know, I, I can, you know, at this point, uh, thankfully, pick the days and, and go. So um, that's kind of a long, <laughs> long, <laughs> short history of, of Beaumont and Ritter. Um, but, but, uh, 
you know, it's a, it's been a blessing to be able to, to play music, and, and we've, uh, you know, we've had a lot of people that uh, we, you know, did our first recording back in, in 93, early 93 years release. We didn't get another one done until about six or seven, I think in 2013, we recorded another one up there at my brother's studio in Indy. And we have another one finished. Uh, we recorded it in Indy over the last couple of years, and uh, um, a friend has a uh, the guy I used to play music with in that trio, and Indy has a really good studio there. He offered us the time when he didn't have anything else booked, so we kind of had to stretch it out for quite a while because he's pretty busy. He's an Emmy Award-winning sound designer, and so he's, his studio's in, in quite a bit of demand, but bless his heart, he, he helped us <laughs> with this other recording now. With uh, um, There's some other things with Mary's dad. Had some health issues in the fall when we were going to try and get the packaging together, and so it's just this kind of thing we're still kind of working on that and now with everything shut down, um, it's it's meant to be released when it'll be released. But it's a it's a two CD set, so we'll have three CD packages out here before, or a third one out before too much longer. But we've had a lot of folks that that our music has been uh, it's meant a lot to them. They'll be going down to a surgery or, or something that's happened in their life, and they said, "I put your CD on because it's such a comfort to us." And so. We know if we're, you know, we'd like to be playing to, to a lot bigger audiences, but if you have just a handful of people that uh, your music has meant something to them in a, in a crucial time in their life, then I think we've had uh, that sort of success. You can't uh, you know, can't turn your nose at, you know, as, as musicians. Of course, you're always wanting to play the bigger audiences again. That that you've got people that really enjoy hearing you play, and they take the time to come out when there's hundreds of other things they could be doing. Where we're extremely grateful for that, and that inspires us to, to keep on going. Where can people hear your music, get your music, buy your music? Do you have, uh, do you have social media? Is it uh, all bomarandritter.com? Do you have a YouTube channel? Yeah, we've um, got a YouTube channel. I just actually I don't have a whole lot of stuff on that right now. Just, uh, again, now I've got the time to do it. We've been out doing, like, yard work and things. That, <laughs> or sometimes when you don't have the gigs coming up, uh, we had stuff scheduled we've had to cancel. Um, and sometimes it's, it's hard just to knuckle down and, you know, again, been grinding away as much as we have. This time has been kind of a time of doing projects around here that we haven't had time to do because we've been out playing so much. But um, we, uh, I've, I've loaded a couple more videos on YouTube. We've got a couple concerts on there. We've got quite a few videos on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Bomar and Ritter Music, all spelled out. Um, and then our, our, our uh, website, we're kind of in transition, trying to, the web guy that's helping us out, we're trying to get a new host on it. And, and so um, I'm not sure where it's at right now. I haven't looked at it to see what our schedule looks like. But there are a few video links on there. Um, I just recently found out we uh, our main online source of, of getting music to people is we'd always tell them to go to CD Baby. Well, CD Baby doesn't do a retail thing anymore, but I think uh, you can go to iTunes and uh, any, uh, Amazon, uh, any of the other online retails. We, we should be out there if you just uh, go to Bomar and Ritter. Um, you can stream us, I, I think, on all the streaming platforms. Um, you can stream on those. We don't stream a whole lot of music here either. We're kind of old school in some things. <laughs> we just don't have the time uh, in other ways to stream. But I, there's a, uh, I know we get uh, CD Baby still does our digital distribution, and we have a little dashboard on there where we can go see who's listening to what song or where you know where it's going on, and 
you'll see a, a stream of somebody streamed one of our songs and we've earned like zero point uh, zero one cents for that stream or something like that. So it takes a while to make money that way, but we're out there regardless uh, on that. And, and uh, so I'm going to have to investigate though once we get this other CD uh, project finished, um, whether there's a way people can go directly to another. You know, CD Baby's been good for it's easy. You pay a certain fee, and they they put it out there on all those platforms, which would be really hard for us to do on our own. And uh, so, yeah, um, I would just say go to wherever you stream music or uh, online retailers that you go to. Um, Amazon, it seemed like one of our CDs that had a pretty high price on it. We don't make any more money. Uh, we set the price. They, they send it out to the other, and then the other places set their price. We, we you know, it, it's not so much about making money we have to look at that but it's about connecting with people really if we either play a gig somewhere and we've made a whole lot of money but we didn't feel like we connected with anybody we kind of feel uh, leave the place feeling like what did we really accomplish but there's other gigs we've hardly made any money and people are just uh, just you know telling how much they enjoyed it and we kind of float home you know so uh yeah i I would just uh I, I don't have a, a real great answer on that because somebody just last week said, I, you're, you know, the CD Baby retail store is closed. Like, oh, really? So I checked into it. So it should be out there, though, at iTunes and wherever else you can find online music. I'm actually looking at Amazon Music because I um, subscribe to their Amazon Unlimited, and yeah, it's got the Take the Road album from 2013 and the first step in 2008. Yeah, that's it's yeah. yeah, the record actually came out earlier than that, but that's when we got it up there. Yeah. So okay, it's, it's there, so that's yeah. good. Um, I haven't checked our, you know, we, they they put a little, uh, you have parameters on, on when they send you some money and we've got a little savings account where we have our, our uh, when they sell CDs or the streaming amounts, reach over $10. You can set it for 20 50 <laughs> or whatever you want, but it was it was coming in so slow. I had it at 20 for a while, and I thought, well, I'm going to bump it down to 10 <laughs> And the people in our demographic, are they're not big streamers or mm-hmm. big uh, downloaders, so we're kind of caught in the middle. That people are listening to it out there, but it's been a while since we've had a ten dollar deposit made into the savings account. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 just a little extra thing that's out there. Uh, we make most of our sales from the, and most of our revenue is really just from from the, the we get paid playing the gigs and tips and and the CDs aren't even selling as as well as they they used to. I think the, um, there's other avenues for I guess you know again our, the people that really are into our music aren't as much into downloading, so we're kind of in that that middle ground right now uh streaming i guess is going to be the next big thing uh um or getting on playlists you know uh, mm-hmm. um, pandora and, and spotify playlists and i i'm not really sure there's ways to do that but there's too many other things to try and keep up with just what we're doing to to, to get our gigs and and get our recordings done to uh, it's that's more of a a younger younger folks thing that grew up with that that makes it it's pretty easy for them but so, yeah. right, what's your facebook page again it's like uh, do Facebook.com and then I guess whatever it's forward slash or the one that's the top's leaning to the right, I don't know if it's forward or backslash. But uh, then it's just Bomar and Ritter Music is spelled all out B O M A R A N D R I T T E R Music. Um, and I, you can, I think there may still be a link on our website to CD Baby, but that's not going to get, at this point, it's not going to get folks what they want if they're interested in our music. Um, and then again, I guess with all the streaming platforms, it should be out there. And that's the thing that the nice thing that CD Baby does um, gets it out there. Bob Ritter, we ran long. 
<laughs> I apologize. Oh, uh, no worries. I'm I'm just uh I'm going to go take a jog here in a little bit, but uh I'm, you know, we're we're not on a on a tight schedule now, which is again, it's kind of nice to to not feel like okay, I get this done because I could get this other thing done later. It's just 